Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. I'm glad you guys made it in safely this morning in the snow. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. Now, I just wanted to mention uh, as we start out that there are some hills that are worth dying on. There are some hills theologically that are worth dying on, and the Apostle Paul actually helps us know which hills those are in the book of Ephesians, especially in these opening chapters, chapters 1 through 3. So doctrines like the sovereignty of God, this is something that comes up repeatedly through the book, knowing that God is in control, that he has a plan of redemption for his people. Uh, the Trinity, that's another doctrine that we see repeated through this book. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect oneness working out our salvation. The centrality of Jesus Christ who laid down his life on the cross for our sins. This is another doctrine that is essential to Christian belief and life. Uh, we read also about God's grace, that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live, but by the grace of God, we have been brought up from the dead. We are alive in Jesus Christ. That through faith in Jesus Christ, through the shed blood of Christ on the cross, Jew and Gentile have been reconciled. Different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different people have been brought together in Christ. We read also that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has complete authority over all dominions in this world, physical and spiritual. These are the essential doctrines that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand as the Holy Spirit has revealed these things to him. See, Paul gives the Ephesian church a very careful, very precise explication of the most fundamental truths the church needs to know. Theology, not just for the sake of theology, theology for doxology, right? Theology so that we can worship God, so that we can know him and worship him. And my prayer for Bergen Park Church really is that we would become so overwhelmed with the beauty and the majesty of the sovereignty and the power and the authority and the wisdom and the glory of God that we would have no other choice but to fall down before him and worship. That is my prayer for us. My prayer is that we would come to love the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we study this book, that we would love the gospel and that we would hunger and thirst for the word of God. You see, the devil preys on doctrinally weak churches. That's just the way it is. The devil preys on doctrinally weak churches. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 4, and we'll get to this passage in a few weeks, but in Ephesians 4 he says that God in his love and his mercy gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be as infants taught back and forth by the waves and by the wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. God equips his people so that we can build one another up in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God. Now this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be finishing up this first section of Ephesians, the, the section that's very heavy in, in, in the doctrine of God and Christ, what Christ has done. So we'll be uh, 
bringing that to a close this morning. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, if you want to find your way there in your Bible. And we'll be uh, reading that in just a moment. But I wanted to share that when, when my children were, were very young, uh, I used to read a lot of stories to them. They would crawl up on my lap uh, before bed, and we'd sit and read uh, whatever favorite books they would, they would bring to me. And one of those books that we would read frequently was a, a book called Guess How Much I Love You. I don't know if you've uh, heard that story. You may be familiar with that, with that story. But it's a cute little story about these two rabbits, a father rabbit and his son. And these two rabbits are trying to explain to each other how much they, they love each other. And so the little rabbit begins by saying, I, I love you as high as I can reach. And he reaches as high as he can. And of course, the father rabbit responds by reaching even higher and saying, well, I love you as, as high as I can reach. And so this goes on progressively through the story. Uh, this little rabbit, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll spread his arms wide and say, well, I love you as wide as I can spread my arms. I love you as high as I can hop. I love you all the way down the lane and across the river. I love you up into the sky. I love you as far as the moon. But every time this little rabbit tries to explain his love for his father, the father can always reach farther spread his arms wider, hop higher, imagine further. And so this, this goes on like this um, as these two rabbits explain their love for each other. And as I was thinking about that, you, you realize to quantify love is really a difficult, if not impossible, task to really put, put words or, or numbers to it. It seems like there's always something more we can add to love. We can always think bigger. We can always imagine farther. And that's why when I was re reflecting on the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love this week, this ch little children's story came to mind. The breadth, the height, the length, the depth of God's love. Now, if God were to love us as far as his arms could reach, that would be a very big love indeed, wouldn't it? The infinite dimensions of God's love are unfathomable, and that's really what I think the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to here in, in Ephesians 3 in the passage we're about to read. So you can always add one more unit to love. You can always add one more number to a potential infinite. So what are we to make of this incredible love of God? Let's go to Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. And, uh, these verses will tell us that believers have received power from God for a very particular purpose, and that purpose is to know the love of God in Christ and then to live out the love of God in Christ. So Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
Heavenly Father, we, we ask that as we turn our attention to this passage this morning, that you would open our eyes to understand the depths of your love, that you would help us to know this thing that surpasses knowledge, to delight in your love. Lord, this is my prayer for this congregation today, for myself and for everyone here. Help us to love you better. Draw us to the cross. Draw us to you through this study. Would you guide our time this morning in the word? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were here last week, uh, we had looked at uh, the beginning of chapter 3, and, and we saw how Paul was about to start praying for the Ephesian church, and then he went off on one of his tangents, about 12 verses, where he, he, he talked about another subject. And now, finally, we're getting back to that prayer. He's coming back around, and he's, he's praying for the Ephesian church. Now, notice how Paul incorporates, again, Trinitarian language into his prayer. So verses 14 and 15 we see that the Father is at the origin of all life and all activity in the universe. So the Father is mentioned. And then in verse 16, we're told of how the Holy Spirit is the source and the transmitter of spiritually sustaining power for the believers, for the church. And then finally, in verse 17 and onward, we're told how Christ is the means by which divine love is expressed to the church. So the three persons of the triune God express in their oneness the fullness of God for uh, his people, the, the fullness of the love of God for his people. Now Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to know that they are loved by God. And he wants them to be in love with God. You, you know that children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Those might be the most profound words you ever reflect on. Jesus loves me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So I want us to dwell on this profound truth of God's love this morning. And with that in mind, there, there really are two things that Paul helps us understand in Ephesians chapter 3. The power to know Christ's love and the power to live in Christ's love. So those will be the two things we unpack in this text this morning. So first, Paul prays that the Ephesians would recognize the one who is at the origin of love. Paul's central concern really seems to be centered in verses 18 and 19, if you have your Bibles. That's where we'll spend a lot of our time this morning that we may have power or strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's love, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Now understand that in the original Greek, the breadth and length and height and depth has no object. So these are just kind of an isolated statement in the middle of this verse. And we're simply told to think about these grammatically isolated dimensions, these measurements. And the grammar of the verse simply says, think about breadth, length, height, and depth. But, but of what? What is this attached to? And so you've got to go to the context to get clues as to what these measurements refer. So if you go back a little bit into verse uh, 17, if you go to the prior verse, you'll see that we're referring here to the love of Christ. 
And if you continue reading once again, you see that Paul is referring to the love of Christ. And so I would say that the most natural reading of this text simply suggests that these measurements are a reference to the love of God for his people and that that love is a very, very big love. The word agape in Greek, the word that that Paul uses here, refers to the unconditional love of God, divine love, his, his tenderness, his goodwill for his people. Agape is most notably displayed in the self-sacrifice of of Jesus Christ at the cross. That is the love of God. Now, the idea that we can know a love that surpasses knowledge, this seems like kind of an odd thing. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? What is Paul trying to say here? And I really think that what Paul is trying to get at is that there is something indescribably great about the love of God, something so amazing that words may not simply do do it justice. God's love is so great as both a concept and as a a divine activity that our limited epistemic categories simply can't grasp it. What Paul is getting at is that the words may not describe it, so we, we should just enjoy it, live in it. Live in the love of God, savor the love of God. What Paul is communicating is, is that until we know the love of Christ, we don't really know love. We've got to go back to the source, the source of love. Now, all other attempts at explaining the reality and the origins of love will ultimately fail to measure up. This is a serious matter because there is a lot of opinion out there in our world as far as love. Where do we get love? How do we find love? How do we define love? What is love? And you will hear a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas. You listen to pop music, you're going to hear all kinds of ideas, a lot of crazy ideas about what love is. Now, bear in mind that spiritually, I would say that ancient Ephesus, first century Ephesus, probably looked a lot like Evergreen looks today. People were struggling with the same kinds of issues. The human heart has not changed. Okay, The human heart is the same as it has always been. And the people of of Ephesus were steeped in polytheism and pantheism and earth worship and a lot of other wild ideas that we see in the society around us. Artemis of the Ephesians was the goddess of the city of Ephesus. There was a, a, a huge temple built to Artemis in Ephesus. You can read about that in the book of Acts when Paul visits uh, Ephesus for the first time and announces the gospel to the people. And as they convert, as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they, they put off their idols, they cast off these idols to Artemis. But Artemis was the goddess of nature, of hunting, of wildlife, that sort of thing. I think she would have done quite well here in Evergreen, honestly. Right? The goddess of hunting, fishing, nature walks, trail running dog walking, tree hugging, maybe even posting selfies on Instagram, that kind of thing. She would have done well here. And and, and like the Ephesians, I would say that residents here of the mountain community will attempt to explain the realities of love in ways that fail to capture the magnitude of the subject. So I want to show you how, how Scripture can correct the views of love that we see here in our society. One of the most pervasive attempts to explain love today comes from a a worldview that we could refer to as philosophical materialism, 
okay? Philosophical materialism, and this is really just the belief that there is no spiritual reality, that physical substance is all there really is. This is the basis for human value, human existence, just the material substance of the world. It's a godless secularism that elevates basic human longings to a place of ultimacy. And on this thinking, love is a little bit, really little more than a, a, a social construct, maybe an evolved survival mechanism, a strong feeling of solidarity that gives you a sense of warmth toward your fellow human beings. And many of our neighbors walk in the assumptions of philosophical materialism. That's just where people are at. But let's be honest that in a godless universe where physical reality is all there is, we are little more than meat machines whose self-appointed prerogative is survival and whose chief end is to pass our genetic material into the next generation. That's about it. And here's the thing. Philosophical materialism in which our neighbors live will never provide or explain self-sacrificial love or altruism or compassion and tenderness toward other human beings. Godless attempts to explain love will never amount to more than maybe just a life lived for hedonistic desires, at worst. At best, you might be able to do just enough good to pat yourself on the back, that sort of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that your secular neighbors don't do loving things. That's not the point. My point is that secular philosophies have a very, very difficult time offering an intellectually satisfying explanation of why people do loving things. We've got to go back to the source. What is the ultimate source of love? And here the Apostle Paul says, love is rooted in God. You see, our blind, unthinking, morally neutral universe should, in theory, produce blind, unthinking, morally neutral people. But there are other attempts to explain love in the world around us. As you look around at your neighbors in the mountain community, those who are not steeped in philosophical materialism are most likely some sort of pantheist or or neo-pagan. These are people who believe that God or some sort of divine presence is in everything and that all things are are really united, tied together by this divine current. Nature is their temple. There's no fundamental difference between God and humans and elk and deer and all the other wildlife around us. Evergreen pantheism is kind of a strange hybrid of Zen Buddhism. If you really start talking to people, talk to your neighbors about this stuff, It's a strange mix of Zen Buddhism, Hindu non-dualism, a little bit of Eastern mysticism, and maybe some Wicca or witchcraft thrown in for good measure. That's just what what it comes down to. Now, on this thinking, love is rooted in your connection to nature and the living things around you, and that's it. Evergreen pantheism is a messy, esoteric sludge, really. It's very difficult to define. But in any case, the fundamental problem with pantheistic thinking is that on this view, there's no difference between moral categories. All things are united by the same divine current, and therefore all things necessarily exist in a kind of moral balance. Categories of good and evil are fluid and undefinable. To love is to hate is to love is to hate. It all kind of melds together. If you take it to its logical conclusion, that's what you end up with. But what about polytheism? That's another one to to touch on. 
Go back to Ephesus, first century. That was the worldview of the people of Ephesus prior to becoming followers of Jesus Christ. They were worshipers of Artemis and, and many other gods in the Greek pantheon. Polytheism is the view that there's a plurality of gods. And in this view, on this view, love would be reduced to whatever god one chooses to worship at the moment. So if you're a worshiper of Artemis, as the Ephesian people were, then love would be defined as they see Artemis. If you were a worshiper of Zeus, you'd define love however love looked for, for Zeus or for Hera or for any other god. I would hate to be a victim of the love of Kali or Baal or Satan or gods of that kind. Polytheism cannot offer a, uni a universal definition of love that satisfies our deepest longings. But what about monotheistic religion? As we work our way through these, these views that people hold in the world around us, you could go to a religion like Islam, a religion that defines God as pure will and refuses to ascribe attributes such as love to God. So from my understanding of Islam, it seems that love does not flow from God as part of his nature or part of his character. Rather, love is an action resulting from his will. So if, if God wills love, then love is good. If God wills hate, then hate is good. If God wills tyranny, then tyranny is good, and on and on. See, the God of Islam is named for his actions, and therefore the virtue of love is reduced to an act of the will of God and nothing more. It does not flow from his character as it does with the God of the Bible. See, and I share these examples not to provide an in-depth analysis of these worldviews. That's not possible here. But really just to illustrate in some limited way that these views of love differ radically from the kind of love described in Scripture. You see, when Paul describes the dimensions of love in verse 18, he's describing the very character of God. Paul is, is not actually trying to describe a particular measurable quantity of love. Okay, he's describing a quality of God, God's actual character. Christians, we, we need to understand that God demonstrates love because he is love, okay? God's action flows from his character. The God of the Bible, the true living God, loves because that's just the kind of God he is. That's, that's who he is. And when we stand outside of the love of the God of the Bible, we stand out of outside of love, period. That's just, again, how it is. There is one and only one ultimate source of love, and any attempt at love outside of God will lack ultimacy, purpose, and satisfaction. That is what Paul is trying to get us to here. Paul wants us to see that Christ is not just an option for understanding the origins of love. Jesus Christ is the only option. Okay? Jesus is not just an explanation among many for love. Jesus is the only explanation. We have to go back to the source. Back to the source of love. If you want to know how big God's love is, look at the cross. Look at the cross. If you want to measure God's love for you, look at the cross. Behold the tenderness and the mercy of God. Let's imagine a scenario for a moment. Imagine a child, a young child, playing in his father's office or his father's study, though he knows he's not supposed to. 
And he ends up, while he's playing in this, this room, he ends up breaking a, a, an extremely valuable collection of some sort, maybe some antique uh, family heirloom or some framed photo of some sort, but he shatters this object all over the floor. He wasn't supposed to be in there. Now he realizes the damage he's done. His mother enters the room. And if you were like me growing up, those words I, I hated and dreaded, wait until your father gets home. Okay, that was the worst thing I could hear. So I would be cowering in fear, uh, waiting for that moment. So imagine in this scenario, this child is waiting for his father to return. But then, finally, when the father does enter the room, he simply takes the child in his arms, comforts him, stoops down and, and sweeps up the glass, cleans up the mess, doesn't say a word, simply comforts the child. Kind of imagine God's love to be something like that. But, of course, on a much, much bigger scale. If you're that child, guilty, ashamed of what you've done, again, I encourage you, look at the cross. Go to the cross. See what God has done for you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it for us. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is that which gives us the power to live in the love of God. When we know God through faith, we're filled with his fullness. In other words, we lack nothing. You see, we can't have love for God until we're filled with the fullness of his love, as we read in, in verse 19. And in fact, this is right in line with what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, where he says, this is love. Not that, that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave his son, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice. See, the power to live in Christ's love comes in the form of supernatural obedience, where God himself empowers us to keep his commandments. Our obedience to Christ is a supernatural response to his affection for us. In other words, thoughts and actions that we produce are a natural, supernatural, I should say, response to a spirit-filled life, a life that loves the commandments of God because it takes pleasure in the love of Christ. Now, during World War II, the nation of France was under Nazi occupation in the north in particular. In the south, uh, the Vichy government had been uh, put in place by the Nazis to control things in France, but there were pockets of resistance and people who risked their life, not just in France, all over Europe, but people who risked their life to try to save Jews during that time. And there's one particular village in France that's, that's notable for this. The, the village was called Le Chambon in central France. It was a Protestant village, which made it unique as well, in, in a very Catholic country. And if you know your, your, your church history a little bit, the, uh, the Catholic Church in France really oppressed the Protestants. So the followers of John Calvin and other French reformers were either put to death, imprisoned, or, or fled the country. But there were a few enclaves. They would settle in these villages in more remote parts of the country. And so this particular village, Le Chambon, was a, a Protestant village, and they were led by their pastor, André Trocmé, to help Jews during this time, during World War II. Hundreds, if not even thousands of Jews passed through this village and were given food and given shelter and given a place to hide. Very small village, 
But what's interesting, uh, Pastor Tokme was taken prisoner, captured, and thrown in prison, beaten, tortured for his work. Others from that congregation were captured, found out, thrown in prison, beaten, tortured for their work. And every time one was taken, others in the village would step into their place and continue this work. They saved, again, hundreds if not thousands of lives. And after the war, when this pastor was asked, why did you guys do what you did? Why did you save so many Jews? Why did you risk your life for these people? And his response is, we couldn't have done otherwise. We never got together and discussed it. We never voted on it. We simply did what we knew we needed to do. And interestingly enough, on the Protestant church, on the door frame of that church, as you enter into the, the Protestant temple in Le Chambon, the words, aimez-vous les uns les autres, were written over the door. Love one another. Love one another. It's simply what these people did. So as we think about, well, how do we get better at love as a church? How do we do the things of Christ and live a life of love? It starts again by going back to the source. You want to get better at love? Yeah, resolving to do so may help a little bit, but ultimately you're going to get better at love by knowing the source of love. You've got to get close to God. Know Jesus Christ. Walk in his love, live in his love, and that love naturally flows out of who we are, what we do as Christians, right? It, it becomes what we do, I should say, as Christians. You see, God is able to do more than we ask or imagine, as we read in verse 20, because he is more than we could ask or imagine. Even a glimpse of this God should lead us to the very same declaration that Paul makes in verse 21, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.